Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, and as you're turning there, just enjoy the wonder of knowing that our God, our King who reigns on high, was born into humanity, stepped into time, lived among people made in the image of God. And our King Jesus lived out the very righteousness of God that you and I are unable to live out. And before he went to the cross to take upon himself the wrath of God that our unrighteousness deserves, he healed and he taught. And the scripture says he taught like no one ever heard teaching before. And this morning we're blessed to hear our Lord's teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew has presented to us Jesus as king. He's the king of kings. He's the, he's the, the Lord's anointed son, isn't he? The very son of God in his deity. And yet Matthew has said he's, he's as human as you are. As human as I am, he's the the son of David, the son of Abraham. And as king, the Lord Jesus has a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And the the good news, the, 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 the gospel of this kingdom is nothing less than the inbreaking of heaven to God's people and to God's world. And, and it comes to us by grace, doesn't it? It comes to us one heart at a time, repenting and surrendering to the gracious rule of Christ, the King. So the Sermon on the Mount, which we begin to look at this morning, and we're just going to get our toes wet, um, is really our King's manifesto. This is the way of His kingdom. That This is not only the nature of those who belong to it, but it's the way uh, kingdom people are enabled to live by God's grace. The Sermon on the Mount describes what human life and community look like under the gracious rule of God. And if that sounds like an introductory statement, it's because it's an introductory statement. We'll keep going back to that in the months ahead as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is describing in these early verses of Matthew 5 the nature of those who belong to him. I urge you then, in light of that, to consider that for yourself. Do you belong to this king? You have a sense of what that is. And Jesus will go on to describe the life he calls his people to. The life his grace enables his people to step into. And so I urge you, in light of that, ask yourself... Am I living such a life? Is that the trajectory of my life? The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is a, is a realm of blessing, and it's a dominion of righteousness. The opening verses, verses 1 through 12, as most of you know, are called the Beatitudes, which simply means happy. Although we'll see in a moment that 
This is not an earthly, earthbound happiness. So much more than that. The Beatitudes describe the abundant well-being that belongs only to the king's people. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If you know the king, you know this happiness. If you don't know the king, this happiness is foreign to you. So in these Beatitudes now, are you in Matthew 5 yet? Of course. We see the king's blessed people. Look at verse 1 with me. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's kind of an upside-down kingdom, isn't it? Very different from what the world describes as blessing or happiness. And I want us to begin by just considering the preacher. Not me, Jesus. What kind of preacher is this who gives this message Well, he isn't the kind of preacher who simply knows the faces of his sheep or maybe knows a bit about them, whether they have one or two kids or five kids, that sort of thing, what village in Galilee they're from. This preacher is the shepherd king we just sang to and of. He knows not only the faces of his people and bits and pieces about their lives, He knows the heart of every single one of them perfectly. Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine hearing, teaching, a sermon, if you will, whose every word is tailor-made for your heart? It's as if the preacher not only lived near you, but with you, in you. That's precisely what Matthew tells us in verse 1 when he says, and seeing the multitude, Jesus sees, not just visually, but he he perceives, he knows, he understands the heart of every person gathered on this mountainside outside of Capernaum. And the king is not here on this particular day to take in the beautiful scenery, although it is quite beautiful. He's not there to catch the the view of of the sea. He made that sea. It's a big lake, really. He knows how many fish are in its waters. And he knows exactly where they are at the time he is speaking these words. 
The king has come to this mountainside on this day to view the hearts of these gathered people and, and to reveal to these people his own heart, the heart of God, the, the, the heart of the kingdom of heaven. And so says Matthew, the king comprehends, he sees all that is in each conscience before him. And why do I mention this? Because you, you can be certain of this. This Jesus looks into your heart today the same way. He sees you gathered as you are right now this same way. The king knows the hearts of his people. And I urge you to consider this this morning. What, what does he see as he looks into your heart today? Notice that Matthew is careful to tell us of Jesus' location. Still in verse 1, making tremendous progress, aren't we? He went up on a mountain. Why does that matter? Why, why do we need to know that? Well, Matthew has been telling us that the coming of Christ, the coming of God's anointed king into this world is a, a new genesis, isn't it? It's a, it's a new beginning for God's people. It's a new beginning for God's world. And, and this new beginning, he has told us, requires a new exodus. God's people, captive as we are in sin by our very nature, need to be rescued. We, we, we need to be set free from our bondage to sin's penalty. Hell itself. The wrath of God upon all sin. And we desperately need to be set free from sin's power over our lives. Is that happening to you? Have you been set free? Are you being set free in that way? The king has come into this world, his world, for this express purpose. And like the first Moses, God has sent a deliverer, his own son, Jesus, not only to liberate his people, but to speak to them the law of God, or we could say the way of the kingdom. The best life that God has for his people, the life that he empowers by his spirit, his people to live. The Greek words that are translated, he went up on a mountain, are used three times in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, all three times in the book of Exodus describing Moses up on Mount Sinai. And so Matthew is very deliberately painting in Old Testament colors so that we'll see that this new exodus is underway. Deliverance has come for God's people. Liberation is now underway for God's people. Moses, in that sense, typified Christ, didn't he? So Jesus has come to liberate and to lead his people in the way of his kingdom. All of this by way of just getting our toes wet to prepare to dive in deeper into this Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to notice in the months ahead that the kingdom way Jesus speaks of is not 
a new law of God at all. Don't think that way. How many of you know God's law has not changed one bit? Why? Because God has not changed one bit. Why? He doesn't need to. You and me, we're the ones that need to change. So we mustn't think of Jesus that way, as somehow a a different version of God. That's heretical. And yet people today will insist, you know, God uh, in Moses' time, in fact, they made a movie about this, God in Moses' time was, was really strict and harsh. You, you read all about it in that Old Testament. And then Jesus came, and God is now really nice. And, and, he's, and, and he's pretty lax, and, he, and he's kind of like a really tender grandpa that way. Maybe even less rules than a grandpa, you know, that sort of thing. We're, we're not... We don't care about God's law anymore. We're grace people. We're Jesus people. How many of you know that is a false Jesus? You follow a Jesus of your own imagining, you have a false gospel. In fact, Jesus' opening words are similar to Moses' beatitudes to God's people as they prepared to enter the promises God gave them. Did you wonder why we read that verse together? In Deuteronomy, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. That's precisely the tone that Jesus has now as he says what? Happy are you who are poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you who mourn. You shall be comforted. So much in one sentence, don't you think? And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Jesus, as we understand from the other gospel, has been drawing larger and larger crowds. He found no honor in his hometown of Nazareth, so he's in around Capernaum now. And this great multitude has gathered, and yet perhaps closest to Jesus are his disciples. Jesus sits down like a rabbi, and and the disciples next to him, then the multitudes. And Why do I belabor this? Because in a group of people this size, there's something very similar happening. There always is when the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed. There are those who know the king and whose hearts thrill at his words in scripture. And there are those gathered who are curious and yet still outside the kingdom looking in. And I wonder this morning if perhaps you are such a person interested enough to be here And yet, outside the kingdom looking in and and the happiness that you heard in the glad voices of God's people as they worshipped. Appeals to you. And yet remains elusive. I want to just encourage you this morning that God has you here very purposefully. 
Not randomly. Not circumstantially. You're here by the providence of God. And for you, these opening messages on the Sermon on the Mount are an invitation. And they're also a warning. The king's invitation he issues toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, enter by the narrow gate. That's an invitation. You, you who are outside the kingdom, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. There's the warning. The invitation is also the warning. The way into the kingdom is narrow. Well, how narrow is it, you wonder? It is as narrow as the cross of Jesus Christ. How do you even get into this kingdom? You enter in simply by receiving this gift of grace. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has done for you. Because narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And there will always be, listen, there will always be those who say, well, that, that's too simple. I mean, of all of the religious systems out in the world today, that has to be the simplest. It's got to be more complicated than that. I mean, I have neighbors who, are, who, who have different beliefs, and you should see what they do. It's way more complicated than that. It, it's got to be more complicated than grace alone, by faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. <laughs> no, they'll tell you. It's good that you're in church, but you better make sure you're there every Sunday. In fact, if they ever change the schedule and start doing it Sunday night, you should probably go then too. And then you got to make sure you run around doing all kinds of church stuff because you got to score points with God. And you know in your own conscience that you've already lost a whole bunch of points with God. So you're already on the wrong side of this equation. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking of that equation, let me just encourage your heart by telling you to erase it and forget it forever. The only way into this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is to know the king. How do you know the king? You receive that gift that's being imparted in your conscience right now. You trust in the work of Christ for you. And he'll gladly have you. And that's the only way he'll have you. Are you hearing this? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, the king's demand is loyalty from the heart. This is a gift from God. This repentance and faith in Christ. The blessed man's behavior then flows from love for the king. 
The blessed woman's righteous life flows from gratitude toward the king. Do you, do you have a sense of what that is? You see, I, I want you to be sure of this. Because Jesus wants you to be sure of this. Look at verse 2. I told you we were just going to get our toes wet. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. What a, what a strange phrase. I got stuck on that. What's that all about? Why doesn't he just say he taught them? Or he opened his mouth? Well, Matthew is using a phrase there, an idiom in his day, that ensures that his first listeners, his first readers, know that the teaching that follows is solemn. In other words, it's of utmost importance. Of all the things you could listen to, listen to this. That's what it means. And I would argue to you this morning that this message we call the Sermon on the Mount uh, is of utmost importance to you. It's of utmost importance to me. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the kingdom that even now is breaking into humanity as the gospel of the kingdom spreads throughout the world. And it will remind us that the grace of God in Christ that forgives his people is also a grace that enables his people to live the kingdom way. Now, why do I mention that? Because Jesus is going to go on to describe the righteous life uh, that God's people are called to and enabled to live and are progressively, uh, by work of the Spirit, moving into. And there will be those who say, now, be careful now, church, that's legalism. No, it is not. That is the gospel of the kingdom. So we don't want to be those who say, well, you know, we're Jesus people. We don't care about God's law. Turns out Jesus does, and he's God. We should follow suit. This is not super complicated, but it's very urgent. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As in Deuteronomy, the word blessed is happy. <laughs> How happy are the poor in spirit? Well, what's it like? Well, it's kind of like what you heard when, when people here were singing. That vibe. It's from the heart. And how different this kind of happiness is from the fleeting of false happiness that is offered by this world. The world's got all sorts of ideas for you to consider with respect to this happiness business. As Americans, all of us good patriots that we are, we know that our very constitution, um, our founding papers anyway, tell us that we have a right to this pursuit of happiness. But here's the thing. We've been pursuing happiness for over 200 years now. And we're just as discontented a bunch as we ever were. There's got to be more to it than that, right? Maybe we're just too America-centric. That's possible. Sociologists say that if you go to Finland, now there's, there's the happiest place on the planet. In fact, there's actually something called the World Happiness Index. I'm not making this up. And the people who put together the World Happiness Index say, Finland, last five years, happiest place on the planet. Why? 
really high gross domestic product per capita, healthy lifestyle, freedom to make individual choices. And yet what's interesting, if you study the lives of people in Finland, you find that they're not all that different from the lives of people here. In that the freedom to make choices for self tend to be inherently selfish. They tend to be not inherently God-honoring. So this so-called freedom to live out one's own will is really a bondage to self-will and sin. And length of life, think about this, still ends in death and judgment. There's no getting around it. There's a 100% death rate among people. I read the stats. <laughs> and, and if adults can't agree on the happiest place on earth, what about the kids? They, some of the kids might say Disneyland is the happiest place on earth, right? It's even advertised that way. The happiest place on earth. I'll tell you what, no mom or dad paying 150 bucks a head to get into that place would call it the happiest place on earth. There's no way that would happen. They don't even want to be there. On our, f- Do you have time for a quick story? I'm going to tell it anyway. I just want to know where you're at. Um, on our first trip to Disneyland, you know what I'm going to say. Um, so our first ride was called It's a Small World. And I'm not making this up. The boat in front of us sank. In eight inches of water, the boat sank. And uh, the, the whole ride's backed up for a long, long time. We listened to It's a Small World like a thousand times. And, uh, I mean, you, we left that ride twitching. And that was not even the happiest place in Orange County, let alone the world. And, then, and the thing of it is, you know, we laugh at that stuff, but what, what, an, what, an, what an example that mankind's quest for happiness is a dead end. It never delivers. Maybe you're here this morning, friend, and you know this by experience, this, this happiness, this wellness of soul for you remains elusive. And so your ears are attentive to this Jesus who comes as one who knows the hearts of all people and sees you in your dissatisfaction, and yet he offers wellness of soul, blessedness, happiness. The happiest place on earth is that heart and life in which Christ reigns as king. Is that your heart? The Puritan Thomas Watson puts it this way. He says, Alas, the tree of blessedness does not grow in an earthly paradise. The blessedness, the happiness Jesus speaks of here only exists in this realm, this dominion called the kingdom of heaven. It's enjoyed only by those who know by faith this king. And it's always been this way, by the way. Listen to Psalm 144. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. It's always been this way. 
We were created for happiness, for wellness that grows out of walking with God on friendly terms as people made in his image. And sin has ruined that, hasn't it? And yet it's only in relationship with the one true God, with Yahweh, that this happiness is found. And the king, listen, the king has already told us in Matthew's gospel how to get in on this. Matthew 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here because the king is here. How do you get in? Repent of your sinfulness before God. And trust in this king who's come to serve you. Not to be served, but to serve you. To give his life a ransom for many. You say, well, that's like, what's that like? Well, it, it's like being poor in spirit, isn't it? This, this is to do with humility. This, this is what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about people who are economically poor. Do you realize hell will be full of people who never had a lot of money in this life? Just as it will be full of people who felt they had plenty of money in this life, maybe trusted in money in this life. To be poor in spirit is to be humble, so humble as to repent of your transgressions against God. So humble as to grasp for, only, for God's only means of forgiveness and acceptance, and that is to trust in the Savior he has provided. This Jesus, name him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. No one enters the kingdom of heaven without this poverty of spirit. And it's a gift from God. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, it is an essential part of the gospel that conviction must always precede conversion. The gospel of Christ condemns before it releases. Think of it this way. In, in Moses' day, are you still listening? In Moses' day, the, the Hebrew people were fully convinced that they were slaves of Pharaoh's Egypt. That didn't take much of a sales pitch at all. I mean, Moses didn't have to show up and say, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but for 400 years, we've been under the thumb of Pharaoh. I mean, they were well aware. It was patently obvious. And, and so in the, this new exodus, Jesus' people who are those who are fully convinced, convicted, if you will, that they are helpless and hopeless slaves of sin. Stuck there apart from the grace of God. Alienated from God by nature. Souls imprisoned. Completely unable to step into the liberty that is the way of the kingdom. And the spirit of God moves among his people to, to do what? Enable repentance. Enable faith in the deliverer in Christ. And the world today will offer you an alternative. It will say, well, the, you know, believe, believe whatever you want, but the main thing is to be sure you believe in yourself. 
I mean, you'll, you'll, you can meet counselors who will tell you, do you believe in yourself? Because that, that's the main thing. That's the key to it all. Happiness, security. In fact, you're unhappy. You feel insecure. You lack assurance in life because you just don't believe in yourself. And let me just encourage you once more to throw that in the trash and never think of it again. It's the advice the kingdom of darkness gives to those who are on the broad way to destruction. The king has come, and and he says to his people, humble yourself, believe in me, get under my gracious rule. Let me reign over your life. The kingdom is yours. William Hendrickson in his commentary on Matthew says the word for poor in verse 3 is not referring to a pauper so much but a beggar. One who is utterly dependent upon others and knows it. (laughs) That is our only acceptable disposition toward God. What what an upside-down kingdom this is. Holding nothing of our own apart from grace, we receive everything. Holding on to anything but Christ, we receive nothing. We stay on that broad path to destruction. Oh, how it matters that you know this king who sees into the hearts of his people. God's prophets had always told his people this very thing. Listen to Isaiah 57. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah himself shows us what this poverty of spirit looks like in a person. Woe is me, he says. I'm a man of unclean lips. What what about Moses? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? (laughs) Not sufficient in myself, God. It's going to have to come from you. King David, who am I that you, Lord, have brought me thus far? (laughs) One of the disciples sitting on this hillside along the Sea of Galilee, a fellow named Simon Peter would one day say, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Well, what is that in all of those guys? It's poverty of spirit. It's humility before God. And it's the essence of God's kingdom people. Let me just end with this. Verse 3 describes for us how our king responds to such humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't misread that. It doesn't say one day they will go to heaven. Just hang on tight. You'll get there at some point. No, it says yours is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense, right now, you're in the kingdom. The blessings of the kingdom are yours now, you who are poor in spirit. What, what is that, that blessing? Well, it's, it's, it's not to do with the American dream. 
And you know as well as I do, you finally get that house you always wanted, and what happens? The guy across the street has a nicer house, and, he, and, he, and he's got a bigger yard, and his dog isn't insane like yours is, you know? <laughs> and so it, it, it never shakes out that way. This isn't to do with that circumstantial happiness. This is wellness of soul. The Hebrew word shalom, inner peace, inner satisfaction that has nothing to do with outward circumstances comes comes closest to that probably. But the, the king's blessed people enjoy a wellness of soul that only comes from knowing him and belonging to his kingdom. Think of it this way. True happiness is your birthright as a believer. It's already yours. You're not working toward it. You're not even hoping for it one day. It's a gift from your king who says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. This blessedness encompasses the entire realm of your salvation. Think about this. You have peace with God. You have peace with God. You have a clean slate. Your sins, and there's a lot of it, and that's just the stuff you know about. Me too. Your sins, my sins, are completely forgiven, never to be remembered against us ever. Because of the gracious work of our king. You have the assurance that God is for you. Don't you want to live your life that way? Knowing that God is actually for you? That you have friendship with God? All by grace. Everything that his wise providence allows in your life, he will work out for your good and for his glory. This is our king. How gracious is our king? Even the great difficulties, the the, the deep heartaches that so many of us know come through the filter of his great love for his people. They're not only purposeful, they're also the closest to hell that we will ever get. Best days, unending, inexpressibly joyful days, the scripture says, are just around the corner for you and for me, the Lord's blessed people. Whether he comes for us to bring us to himself or whether he comes to this earth to bring about the kingdom in its fullness. Well, let me just stop there. We began picturing Jesus the king seated on a mountainside, perceiving the hearts of the, the people gathered in front of him. And I want us to just end by, in our minds, picturing the listeners. How might have some of them kept their gaze on the king? Nobody had ever heard teaching like that before. But how might have some of them become distracted looking elsewhere? 
And I, and I wonder, as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, will, will we be willing to invite the Lord to say, Lord, show, where has my gaze been lately? See, because I entered the kingdom looking by faith to Christ. And as it turns out, I live along the kingdom way, looking only to Christ, who is gracious to enable his kingdom people. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that by your spirit you would do what only you can do, that you would sow it into our hearts, Lord. We don't want to be people who simply take in information. We want to be disciples transformed into the image of our master. So I pray that it would be so. And Jesus, I pray that as you have declared your saving power among us today from your word, that you would bring salvation to us. Lord, those who have been outside the kingdom looking in, I pray that by your grace they'd stop looking and simply grasp a hold of you by faith. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us as your church, your kingdom citizens. Lord, may we, as you enable, live out this way of your kingdom, that this would be our testimony in the world that others might see your kingdom has come. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.